Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Monday, November 2nd, 2020. One day to go. I am John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. Executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. And associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Uh, So I just wanted to let people know that tomorrow night uh, we are going to be doing a talk about like old old uh, oldies but goodies we're going to do a live blog on our website uh at commentarymagazine.com we're just going to have like we will be commenting through the night in a single post that we'll call something like you know election night with commentary christine noah and uh abe and i will be you know adding whatever it is that we can add i will confess that one of the reasons that we are doing this is that since i uh, no longer uh, will write on twitter i gotta have some outlet tomorrow night or i will go out of my head so uh we're all gonna sort of join in uh so go to commentarymagazine.com i'll remind people tomorrow uh we're gonna do something a little different uh today since this is the day before the 2020 election uh, Noah, last week you uh, decided to uh, take a trip down memory lane and you listened to the first or the last podcast uh, we did before Election Day 2016. Uh, uh, Christine was not with us then. It was just you, me, and Abe. And uh, you were surprised to hear. What was it that you were surprised to hear? Well, I thought it would be a pretty mortifying experience, so I just kind of shamefully did it on my own and didn't tell anybody that this was going to be the case. You know, it's just kind of self-flagellating um, for its own sake. I almost never watched or listened to performances on media, so it was a, it was a spur-of-the-moment decision. But it really wasn't that humiliating. In fact, it was uh, kind of heartening to hear us game out all the scenarios in at least with an, with an open mind or at least... Um, not being dismissive of and contemptuous of the eventualities that led to what actually happened. So, um, you know, we, we covered ourselves in, in, I don't know if it's glory per se, but at least it's, uh, we covered our butts pretty right. well. Um, so I thought we would listen to some bits of our discussion and then react to them uh and here, sort of like, see how uh, weirdly similar the conversation in that last day, which which I think Noah and I, and maybe Abe and Christine both remember as having been far more uh, determinative, this sort of uh, thought that, you know, Hillary just had, had this in the bag. Uh, then it seems to have been the case that uh, somehow uh, we, we fundamentally misremember what the emotions were in the last day or two. Um, and our friend Scott Immergut of Ricochet is helping us today with his advanced technical skills. We've uh, we've uh, cut a couple of uh, of these clips. Uh, Scott, can you uh, can you run clip number one, which I guess we're calling systemic failure? Does it appear that Donald Trump has the upper hand, has momentum, or 
is likely to prevail tomorrow night and become the next president of the United States. The only thing that seems to be spooking people, including poll gurus and the people who make their lives aggregating polls and putting them together, is the possibility that there is a systemic failure going on, a failure to measure appropriately the Trump support that he still has these millions of hidden voters, particularly in places like Michigan, uh, which has a, been a solid democratic state for uh, a president for many years, and maybe even in Pennsylvania, although that seems more unlikely. Okay, so uh, systemic failure is literally the only argument that is being made today for the possibility that Donald Trump can win re-election. So on the day that was November 7th, 2020, we have, look, it could be that there's systemic failure in Pennsylvania, though it seems unlikely, and we are in exactly the same place today. Um, I read a piece last night, uh, Byron York, who was uh, an old friend of mine uh, at the Washington Examiner, who was one of the first people to see the Trump surge in the Republican Party in 2015 in, in New Hampshire. Uh, has a piece where he basically interviews people at Trump rallies and they all say all of their friends are voting for Trump but won't say so, and there is a shy Trump voter. So, uh, Abe. Yes. What do you make of this? Um, Weird well, uh, echo. Uh, well, I mean, it's it's... It's funny because um, we were concerned or we were cognizant of the prospect of uh, systemic polling failure back then without even the precedent of there having been polling failure in the in the in a previous presidential election, which we now have. Well, there, there had been polling failure. Oddly enough, uh, 2012 was a bad polling year, but it well, went not like that, Obama's, but it went in Obama's direction. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. That. Uh, right. Well. So what's interesting, of course, is that in 2016, there was not much polling being done of, of Pennsylvania. There was actually quite a lot, but Michigan, certainly, there was almost no polling because, and we know that, you know, Hillary neglected it and then uh, Trump won it. Um, and that, of course, has been corrected because uh, all the all those states, uh, the Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania have been like wildly polled and there were like 272 polls of Pennsylvania this week. There's one thing that I'll say about the 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 correction for the failure, and it's just a, a possibility. And and because I, whenever we talk about the, the the possibility of a the shy Trump voter who's out there and not being captured, I, I only think of it as a possibility. I'm not arguing that that is definitely what's happening. Um, but you cannot correct for people lying to you. I don't think there are two things. Right. There are two things you can't correct for. You can't correct in a likely voter screen for people who haven't voted before. By definition, if they haven't voted before, they're not in your poll. And if a lot of them show up, you don't know how they're going to vote. And then unless unless there's registration by party, which there isn't in Pennsylvania, I don't believe, but there is in Florida and places like that or people lying to a pollster. 
uh, or what's called uh, non-response bias, which is that people will not participate in a poll, and therefore they may systematically be, their demographic category might systematically be excluded. That's why pollsters do this thing called waiting, where they presume that these people exist even if they don't show up in their polling data, and they change their number, they change their mathematical formula to increase the number of people who say that they'll do something uh, in line with people in the poll who are that demographic, like non-college whites, for example. So if it's, so if it's, there's another, if there's a repeat of that kind of failure, it's because it will have been because you cannot correct for, for people lying to you. I mean, that is, you know, right. going with the Byron York's argument. Right. It, so, Christine, in terms of the smell test, it's one thing to think that people might be lying on the margins. It's another to think that just as there is systemic poll failure, that somehow people are systematically lying to pollsters, not, not deliberately to screw things up, but that there is such a cultural shift in the country and it's so terrifying to admit that you would be voting for Trump in basically, by the way, in states that voted for where Trump won, that... Um, you know, that an ent entire category of people lie to pollsters at the same rate and therefore, you know, are are skewing the polls in the wrong direction. Well, it's uh, so uh, since I wasn't on uh, the, the show that you guys did, I went back and listened to the whole episode, which I just have to say to our, if for any of our viewers or listeners who, who want to do that. There's some epic trolling that John does of Noah's pronunciation of Nevada, which was deeply unfair. Nevada. <laughs> I'm doing it again. I'm doing it to you because it's Nevada. Nevada. Um, yeah. But I was struck, actually, by how all three of you hit on uh, themes that have remained constant for this election, as you noted earlier, John, but that were that that the left and certainly the mainstream media seems not to have learned. One of those in particular is the way that it treats the Trump voter. I mean, this was the sort of learning moment, the teachable moment they you know, all claim to have had. And they right. Didn't. So we should we should play that clip. Uh, Scott, I guess it's the one <laughs> called othering. And then see how that, you know, uh, jibes with what Christine is saying. I think the main thing here is that the, the, the Trump voter remains in the eyes of the, you know, of the media elite and the fashionable opinion and all this, a kind of other. They always accuse Republicans and conservatives of othering minorities and othering people like that. And, of course, this is the ultimate other. These are people who live in places they don't travel to, who live lives that they don't really understand, who, uh, you know, remain more church based, more, you know, home-based, more, you know, likely to live near the places that their grandparents and great-grandparents lived, less mobile, uh, less knowing about the rest of the country, all of that. And so all of their thinking about them is necessarily speculative because the, the empathy may be real, but it is almost like they're reading a novel about the people and not you know, having a real experience of them. Meanwhile, the Trump voter and what Trump is appealing to is their sense of otherness in this where, you know, he goes and he talks to these voters and he says things like, if you go into Detroit, you're going to get killed. 
Right. So I had totally forgotten this, that uh, that uh, Trump, uh, one of Trump's closing messages was these cities are hell holes. Chicago, Detroit, they're hell holes. If you live in the suburbs, you should vote for me. That's eerie, right? Because mm-hmm. uh, they really, I mean, Chicago was in bad shape, but I mean, they were in hell holes, you know, and here we are in 2020 after the riots and the summer of, uh, you know, the summer of disorder and decay and violence. And uh, that message may have landed in 2016, and there doesn't seem to be much evidence that it's landing now. Noah, what do you what do you make of this uh, specific othering? Because it seems to me like there was a lot of very condescending effort to understand the Trump voter after 2016. You know, it's like, let us go visit like, the, you know, we're going to look, going to visit small towns in Michigan and, you know, hunt the elusive snark. You know, you know it's like uh, mis- missionaries, you know, going down, you know, going down the river in Africa looking for people to convert. Right. I mean, it's kind of eerie, too, because there was this... Um a real trend towards decay porn in the uh, early period of the of the Trump administration where you would have you know well-heeled journalists on the coast parachuting into these towns and just asking the people who had lived there for generations and why are you still here why don't you leave and now where are the, where's the decay porn it's in american urban centers it's in the cities that are falling apart and are abandoned. And, you know, uh, when the sun goes down, resemble I am legend. Um, you know, it's, you should have some people from Appalachia parachute into into Seventh mm-hmm. Avenue and ask people on the streets, why are you still here? Um, but, yeah, I mean, as you said earlier, it's sort of a uh, it's a very different political landscape now. The prospect of Donald Trump being a theoretic, a theoretical idea, a hypothetical is no more. And, you know, the kind of systemic polling error that I think we probably will experience tomorrow to the tune of, you know, a couple of points in, in places that have failed in the last two cycles to capture the Republican vote accurately, notably in places like Florida, um, will materialize. But it has to materialize everywhere. And we have no evidence that systemic polling failure has been evident everywhere. And there are places that have continually failed to count the Democratic vote, for example, places like Georgia and Arizona, which have continually undercounted Democratic uh, turnout and uh, and underestimated the Democratic strength at the polls. So the notion that this is going to be uniform or advantaging Trump uniformly is not borne out by the, by the data. And Donald Trump needs a big polling error everywhere in order to pull this out, as opposed to 2016, where he really didn't need a giant polling error in, you know, it, where he got it in places like Michigan. Um, that was what was unexpected. I think people right. were even shocked, not shocked by Wisconsin. It was places like Pennsylvania and Michigan, which had a much longer history. Right. Well, as I say, there the polling in Michigan was 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 scant, and so uh, uh, the polling, if there were a systemic polling failure in Michigan, where I believe Biden is ahead by nine in the polling averages, given how much polling there there has been, that's a larger systemic polling error than in 2016 when there were fewer data points to aggregate. Um, similarly, Pennsylvania, which I think is ending up at about five percentage points with almost all the polling except for the very partisan conservative polling of the last two or three days showing Biden up between five and seven. I should clarify my terms. It's not systemic polling error to be off by two points. 
that's no, no, that's, that's, a, right. that's a misnomer. Um, right. And if yeah. that's not the impression I want to get, it's a, it's systemic pulling error for every poll to show the race eight, nine, ten points right. up, and then all of a sudden it's it's twelve right. points in the other direction. That's error. Yeah, two points off is within the margin of error. Yeah, and that's I mean, look, normal look, polling. Yeah, if you look at the number of states that are close, uh, you know, you have this, you have these weird states that are close that shouldn't be close that should be in the republican category uh you know georgia texas iowa and arizona which are you know have been republican states for 40 years or something like that uh, and they are closer than the trump states of 26 they're closer than michigan uh, Pennsylvania and Wisconsin. And so what you see there is Trump wouldn't just have to have, you know, systemic polling failure in those. He would basically, these errors would have to be being made everywhere. He needs to not have something fall, go against him simply through random selection or whatever tomorrow night for him to win. In other words, like he can win everything that he won uh, while I think losing one of the Midwestern states, right? Like Wisconsin, which is almost certainly, or Michigan, which are almost certainly without, uh, uh, Michigan is almost certainly out of his reach. But so he could win Florida, North Carolina, Pennsylvania. But if he loses Georgia, Texas, Arizona, Iowa, or if he loses Texas alone, then he's done for. So, you know, he not only needs to win every place that he won before, he has he is defending territory where odds are one of the one of those states, Florida, North Carolina, Georgia, Texas, Iowa, Arizona, uh one of them is going to fall to Biden. Well, and because there are so many of them and they're all they're all like tie. They're all jump balls. Well, this actually ties into something else I thought was interesting that you guys discussed uh, in 2016. And that's the enthusiasm, the uh, the enthusiasm gap and the gap that you guys described in 2016, which was interesting, was the enthusiasm for Trump that a lot of people on the right were noticing, but that the media was ignoring and certainly Clinton's campaign was ignoring. But weirdly, this year, it's funny because whenever there is enthusiasm for Trump, it's shown as a pathology by the media. So the, it, over the weekend, I'm sure a lot of our uh, listeners saw that, that there were these Trump trains that, that shut down bridges and highways, the most annoying uh, human beings on earth. I don't care who you're supporting. <laughs> Here in D.C., for example, that's been going on constantly for months. They shut down bridges, they shut down highways, they shut down roads, they do it all the time, the Black Lives Matter folks. And that's, you know, considered this you know, virtuous form of protest. Uh, these Trump folks do it. I find it just as annoying when they do it, but it's 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 shown on the news as this some sort of horrible uh, horrible thing. But the enthusiasm gap now does seem to be Trump's own voters for Trump, whereas in 2016 there there was a genuine kind of grassroots enthusiasm for him that that was being ignored. Now it's almost like it's being manufactured by <laughs> Trumpkins to to sort of uh, encourage themselves in in a way that the polls just simply don't reflect. Right. Um, so we find ourselves in this weird position where uh, people 
now understand that 63 million people voted for Donald Trump, which they didn't understand back then. They still don't understand why, for the most part, unless they unless they argue that this is all atavistic, a journey to the past, racism, you know, hostil, you know, hostility to liberalism, whatever. Um, but they don't understand that in in, in a given in a, a polarized partisan situation, you know, uh, Donald Duck would get. 60 million votes if you were running on the Republican on the Republican line. That that is the nature. It doesn't matter. The generic Republican or the generic Democrat is going to get 60 million votes, whatever their name is, because that's the world that we're living in now. And so you can't really, if you want to say that every Trump voter is morally complicit in the evil if they vote for him, that's fine. That's all that's a different form of othering. Because then you're complicit in Kamala Harris's video last night that basically argued for the position that equality of result is more important than equality of opportunity, which is a deeply un-American and indeed, you know, mildly communist Marxist view and something that is, you know, among the most radical things that any major candidate for office has ever said. And, you know, had she done this two weeks ago, who knows, you know, whether Trump might finally have been able to make hay with the, it's not Bernie, it's not AOC, it's actually on the ticket. It is Kamala who was arguing this incredibly un-American thing, but she did it on the on the eve of the election. So, you know, uh, why can't we say that basically, you know, they're voting for communism if you say that voting for Trump is voting for racism? You know, we, we can. Um Maybe some people who are voting for Trump are voting because they're racist. That that's the nature of that's the nature of the franchise, unfortunately. Um, so uh, let let's talk a little bit about uh, Noah. Uh, like a lot of people, uh, Noah says he's spotting Trump a couple of points uh, in the polls. Just Not everywhere, matter, of course. Not everywhere, but okay. places places right. in the last two consecutive cycles that have undercounted the vote. Florida in in polls, right? So in Florida, polls. yeah, and it's mostly red states. It's places like Missouri and Indiana and Ohio and in Florida. That's where you got really consistent both 2016 and 2018 errors that disadvantaged Republicans. Right. So Florida is basically, I think, you know, the in the polling aggregate is a point toward Biden. So if you were to uh, if you were to apply Noah's formula, uh, it's a point toward toward Trump. Um, here's what's interesting to me. Uh, we alluded to this last week. So I, I so the math is as follows. Um, uh, there are 200,000 more Democrats than Republicans registered to vote in the state of Florida. I think it's 5.2 million Democrats, uh, 5 million Republicans. Uh, in the early vote totals, which are, you know, colossal, uh, there are, I think, 3 million Democrats and 2.8 million Republicans, something like that in the, in the, in the early vote. 
what this says to me is that there is a theory abroad about tomorrow and voting that is now, I think, invalidated. This is the only thing we could probably possibly say about the early vote, if I'm right about this, which is the idea is Democrats are going to vote early, but Republicans are going to like score on Election Day. That's certainly what was thought in 2016 when Democrats did vote early and Republicans then surged on Election Day and Trump took the state quite quite early in the count. Uh, I mean, I think it was called for him at 11, but it was pretty clear by nine that Trump was going to win it. Um, I think that advantage is now gone. And, uh, you know, it, basically the same numbers of Democrats and Republicans have come out to vote early. Uh, there, are, there aren't more Republicans than Democrats. Either Republicans are going to have to have wildly higher turnout to uh, on election day which seems unlikely, like it seems like they both, in the end, voted early the way they would vote. On, and so the there isn't going to be a giant election day, 25 point more Republicans voting than Democrats, um, which means the election is going to be decided by the, by the non-party affiliated voter uh, if you think that Republicans are going to vote Republican and Democrats are going to vote Democrat. So one storyline of the last six months, I think, is 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 conclusively disproven because Democrats did not turn out in wildly greater numbers in the early voting and Republicans held back. They both voted at the same at the same percentage numbers early. So I don't know what you guys make of that. Um, I, I still think that it's too early to say because um, the the campaigns among Democrats and liberals to vote early um, are so ubiquitous in a way that they're not at all um, on, the, on the right that um, I still have to wonder if, if we're not going to see um, a, a disproportionate um, total uh, on election day in the other direction. Okay, well, what happened was, it's even more interesting in the Florida case because Democrats voted overwhelmingly by mail early and Republicans had the advantage voting in person early, like which is what I did on, on Saturday here. I voted in person at a polling place early. So um, uh, I, it's not clear to me Trump invalidated among Republicans the act of voting by mail to some extent, but then they went out and voted early at a polling place. So I'm just saying that the, the numbers don't lie. Uh, they're very close to parity in this early voting plus vote by mail, and they're very close to parity in terms of overall party numbers. So there's no reason to believe that Republicans are going to come out in greater numbers tomorrow than Democrats. I mean, I gotta say, I'm just not seeing what you're seeing. Why? Uh, according to the well, according to the Associated Press, two days ago on October 30th, based on their analysis of the states that report early voting by party ID and political data firm analysis, that Democrats are leading in the early vote over Republicans nationally by 47 to 33 percent. I'm um, not talking. I'm only talking about Florida here, and the Florida okay, well, only. For, yeah, well, it's not the case in the rest of the the rest of the country. For example, you right. But I'm Wasserman. only talking about Florida. I will give you the numbers in Florida. Okay, okay. okay. Here are the numbers: uh, eight point nine two million votes were cast early voting. Democrats three point five million. Republicans three point four million. 
Democrat early votes, 39.2% of all, uh, I don't know what that is. Republicans, 38%. Okay. So, uh, in, and then I looked up on the Florida Secretary of State site, and there are 5.2 million Democrats and 5 million Republicans. So in Florida, only Florida, Democrats and Republicans turned out in very comparable numbers to vote early. Democrats, it appears, have a, like 100,000 vote advantage. So maybe 100,000 more Republicans will turn out on Election Day. Uh, which you know, which is not nothing, but it's but it's still like two or three percent or something. It's not you know some gigantic number. So that's that's what I'm referring to. We're not talking about the early. We're not talking about this you know overall. Uh, apparently, in Pennsylvania, they're expecting you know uh, the Trump vote to turn out you know in in huge numbers on election day, and that the 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 early vote for Biden. You know, this is the whole conundrum of. Pennsylvania, it's like it's going to take longer to count the the Trump vote, and is therefore is Trump uh, the Biden vote, and is therefore is Trump going to declare victory in Pennsylvania when they only have half the vote? In? That was the that was the other that was the freak out over the weekend that Trump is going to you know stage a coup by saying he won Pennsylvania when he hadn't won it yet. Well, and the Democrats have done you know we we talked a couple months ago about how they're not doing the door knocking and Biden in particular you know staying in his basement bunker, but they have been doing a ton of focus on calling uh, undecided voters and um, voters uh, encouraging voters in Pennsylvania to go vote on election day. I have friends actually who spent the whole weekend on the phone with a phone number list calling people constantly to telling them to go vote for Joe Biden. It's and it was interesting because a lot of the voters. They are. And I asked them, like, who are these voters? Like, well, a lot of independents, undecideds, or first-time voters who didn't register and to, you know who can just who need to show up in person at the polls to cast their vote because they've missed mail-in ballot deadlines and whatnot. So they do have a you know they they have a pretty pretty solid focus on Pennsylvania, which it'll right. be interesting to see what that turns up for them. Um, yeah, but we should say it would be extremely underhanded for the president to declare victory on election day because he could yes. very well have a ten-point advantage in Pennsylvania on the election day vote. A lot of people expect him to have a gigantic advantage on election day vote because Republicans all plan to vote on election day. Right. But well, the, this is but, where but right. to overcome an advantage from absentee ballots based on party alone, you would need like a 25 point advantage. The number of Rep- Democrats outpacing Republican votes in Pennsylvania is astronomical. Right. Okay. So here's the point then about what is going to go on tomorrow night. And what I'm saying, everybody is going to say, so I'm now echoing mainstream cliche. Uh, Florida and Texas are going to come in relatively early. If one of them goes for Trump, it doesn't matter what happens in Pennsylvania. And so that's just that simple. Florida, if Florida looks like it's going for Biden, excuse me, Florida looks like it's going for Biden, and the the whole drama over Pennsylvania is over. It only matters if Trump wins Florida and North Carolina, and then we have a drama. If if the scenario that I'm laying out where you have all of those states where Biden is pressuring Trump and it's a jump ball in the polling, Georgia, Texas, uh, you know, uh, and Florida in particular, and one of them, one of them tips toward toward Biden. it's the election's not exactly over. I mean, Florida, it's over, but you know, Georgia, it's not over. Texas, it's over. North Carolina, it's not really over, but it's pretty close. Um, and you know, if you were if you were like betting the odds, you would say 
one of those things is going to happen. You know, just because, as I say, if they're jump balls, the ball, you know, you can presume that the ball, you know, is going to go to one team and not the other 25% of the time. So let's pull back. Give me a second to talk to you guys about today's sponsor, the Jordan Harbinger Show, a very different kind of sponsor. We've been talking about him for a couple of weeks. This podcast, named one of Apple's best of 2018, is aimed at making you a better informed, more critical thinker so you can get a sense of how the world actually works and come to your own conclusions about what's happening. There's an episode for everyone Stories like how a professional art forger somehow made millions of dollars while being chased by the feds and the mafia. And Jordan's done an episode all about birth control and how it can alter the partners we pick and how going on or off the pill can change elements of our personalities. You won't find just one set of viewpoints on Jordan's show. The podcast covers a lot, but one constant is Jordan's ability to pull useful pieces of advice from his guests. You'll find something you can apply to your own life, whether that's an actionable routine change that boosts your productivity or just a slight tweak in your mindset that changes how you see the world. So go to jordanharbinger.com slash subscribe, or search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, and Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Um, so Scott, uh, my friend out in California, can we run clip two about Nate Silver? <laughs> So the question, Noah, is uh, are is are people being too nervous about estimating that Hillary Clinton has this in the bag? And what is it that is generating the nervousness? Well, I guess it depends on who you talk to, right? I mean, the, the, the poster boy for this phenomenon is, is Nate Silver over at 538, who's been giving the left uh, absolute agita. Because he's saying that Donald Trump has a 35% chance of winning the presidency and Hillary Clinton has two-thirds better odds. All right. So here's what's interesting. Last night, Nate Silver put up a piece while his own site said that uh, Biden had an 89% chance of, of winning, saying Trump could still win because the things things happen, one in 10. And... Um, it is one of the bizarreries of Nate Silver's career that he claims that he is trying to educate people about probabilities, that this is really what his goal is, and that's the theory of his book, The Signal and the Noise. He's just trying to educate people about what probabilities really are and that things happen one in three all the time, things happen one in ten all the time, and that's the takeaway you should get from that, which is horse-pucky, because, of course, what it's it, he... He's right, but um, th- therefore you shouldn't be have as your headline the odds of Biden winning the presidency because that that itself is a complete refutation in big number of your point, which is that these odds are um, they're they're misunderstood. You misunderstand a ninety percent chance if you think that means that you're almost certain to win because you're not necessarily almost certain to win. And last night, he did it again. People say, oh, he got it wrong last time. And Noah's reminding us that he was getting crap last time for even daring to say that Trump had a 3 in 10 chance of winning, which obviously he did. 
Last night, he put up a poll saying, I'm here to a post saying, I'm here to tell you that Donald Trump can still win the presidency. And Twitter came down around his head, hundreds and hundreds of tweets saying, you're just covering your butt. You're just you're just covering yourself in case it happens. You are, you know, dishonest. How can you do this? You're driving everybody crazy, blah, blah, blah. So weirdly enough, another eerie echo of uh, of 2016. Abe, I, I don't think you are you're like as um, neurotic about looking at these numbers as no one I are, but, uh, you know, Nate Silver was actually caricatured on Saturday Night Live in the opening sketch uh, Saturday night um, for saying, look, Trump has as much chance of winning as I have of uh, of uh, rolling a die and hitting the number one, and then twice in a row he hits the number one. So he's now become a figure of sport and an and elevation even in popular culture. What What do you make of this? Well, <clears throat> I think the reason people come down around him, uh, come down around his head when he when he says things like he like he said last night, is because under other circumstances they use him also incorrectly to comfort themselves, right? So if he so th- that is the that is the problem. So when he ceases to comfort them by by saying there's only a, a one in a ten shot um, of of Trump winning, then um, then they freak out. Yeah, but I I. I I don't um, observe the polls as closely as, as you and Noah do because I, in fact, because I'm more neurotic and um, following the news and social I media. I dispute it, that. I am more it, neurotic than you. No, I'll, Let's have a neurosis competition. Any, any time. And uh, <laughs> so, so the, the, the polling data is like one step too far for me. I, it would, it would be, it would push me over the edge. Okay. Well, I Twitter noticed that is, Noah, Twitter Noah is, is not entering <laughs> there's there's no not entering the neurosis competition he's like you guys are more neurotic than i am <laughs> so I'm just i just see the field um okay. but yeah it, it makes a good point because um silver um rose to national prominence I mean, he had been a, a figure within this industry for years prior but he became a, a figure of uh, some celebrity in 2012 because he was saying the polls don't believe the polls I know that the national polls show Mitt Romney has a mild average, like a tiny average here on the RCP. And I know that he's ahead in these swing states. And, then, you know, just the, the odds, are, the odds are that it's going to, it can fall in Barack Obama's direction. It only takes this, you know, this event or that event or, you know, how much probability, what have you. And that's, that's where he became a celebrity because he was giving all these Democrats who were panicking um, reason not to panic. So right. now they, he, Right. Now he's given them reason to panic, and they're not especially appreciative of it. Uh, I like Nate. I like the Nate Silver. I like his writing. I like his podcast. I really enjoy their Five Thirty Eight podcast, and uh, I think it's an important point that he makes that um, trying to assess. Uh, you know, try, trying to take comfort in these numbers is a is a fool's errand because they will they will come back to bite you. But it is his bread and butter. That's 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 the weird thing. It's like a horror movie director saying, you know, I don't or like when Howard Stern said, I never let my kids listen to my radio show or something like that, you know, or a or a horror movie director says, I would never let my kids watch my movies. Like, okay, so maybe you shouldn't be making those movies if this is your attitude about what you do to make your living. You know, it's kind of a weird, a weird thing. But but, uh, but the tone, I mean, again, I to go to like the the, the shift in, in anxiety levels or uh, neuroses for this 
collection compared to 2016. I mean, he's just trying to not be Britney Spears. Oops, I did it again. And and for that, like I professionally, that's just smart. But there's a sense in that now in which and I think when you know, when you look at the suppression of the Hunter Biden story and you look at the kind of weird overreactions to very minor things that we see in the mainstream media narrative over the last month or so. Now there there is a real panic, a real sense of we cannot let this happen, which is very different than he cannot win re-election, right? That that those are two different thoughts. And I mean, this speaks to the 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 concern about election day violence, about, oh, you know, Trump isn't gonna gonna concede. I mean, there, there's a whole range of we can't let this happen. And the we there is only a certain group of people in this country that I think once again sees the other side not just as an other now, but actively as enemies in some ways and as a threat to democracy. So in the sense that this elections, the stakes feel much higher for a lot of people. That's why. And, and again, going back to the 2016 podcast, it was there were some serious issues on the table. You guys all expressed some really healthy skepticism of Donald Trump and how he might go. I mean, it was it was a great it was a great listen. The stakes and the tone really do feel different this time around, though. But, you know, uh, wait, how something- so? And because the stakes of, well, are higher or lower? No, I think the stakes are the are always the stakes of the presidential election. What I'm saying is that the tone is very much more like this is a defining moment. I mean, I have a neighbor who has a sign up that says democracy, you know, you must vote for Joe Biden or democracy will die. I mean, it's it's so apocalyptic. Um, and I and I've actually been impressed that, that the Nate Silvers of the world have tried to just kind of trundle along and do their basic job without succumbing to the apocalypticism. Um, I, Trump's rhetoric in running for reelection is, is really no different. I mean, that, that's the odd part is he is saying, vote for me, or these people are going to destroy America. Whereas the classic message of a reelection campaign is to say, don't you you feel better than you did four years ago, which of course this Gallup poll that we keep mentioning says you 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 think you're in better shape than you were. Uh, they said all these terrible things about me that uh, weren't true. Uh, the economy was in good shape until the pandemic. I've made peace in the Middle East. Uh, I've fought for you on trade deals. That like they're crazy. Listen to the way they're talking. Uh, That's the same message from 2016, but he's abandoned his populist appeals. Right. The the populist right is very frustrated with Mm. Donald Trump for not hammering home things like immigration and and trade protectionism and, uh, you know, the realignment of the electorate, the working class, super Alice, and uh, this sort of thing that they really hung their hats on, all, in my view, to establish a narrative after he loses that he only lost because he wasn't the Donald Trump of 2016. Fair enough. But what it's interesting, though, because uh, Christine's saying they're saying this is it like this is the right this election is the Reichstag fire this election is the end of everything and Trump rather going what are you crazy like what are you talking about we've got this we're in this terrible situation with this pandemic and everything but look this is a great country you know you you've done great work i've done great work we're going on we're fighting for he re, he fell into the tr- same he trap. plays into the yes exactly but exactly. He, in a weird way he never got a reelect message out uh because he also wanted to say you see look at the city now we all understand that like we thought that that was going to be a more successful message than it appears that it was about the urban unrest in the you know in the summer 
and and in some sense going on even now in Philadelphia last week and all of that. But he needed to be a reassuring voice about how, you know, it was going to be more of the same if you elected him, not you better pick me because these people are going to ruin the country when they're making a reasonably uh, undismissible case that he's ruining the country. So if you're having a fight on who over who will ruin the country less, that's not necessarily a good, you know, that's not a good field to play on. Well, and but I think, the, I think the weird part, yeah. The, the field is shaped by the pandemic, I think. Um, he, Trump could have made, not that he would have, but he could have made something closer to a traditional re-election pitch without the pandemic. Well, he could, have made it, he could have made it with the pandemic if he hadn't screwed up his response to the pandemic. I mean, you know, we go back, his high water mark in 2020 was March 28th, 29th, 30th, as he was, as he was in the moment when he was taking the pandemic the most seriously. And as we, if he had been resolute, calm, tough, you know, focused and not, you know, bouncing all over the place every two days about, about how he was responding to it, not only would he have benefited from a rallying around the flag effect, I think, but the message about how we can't shut the country down in perpetuity and we need to make sure that as we are doing this, we are thinking very hard about how we're going to get going again and what the circumstances and conditions are that make it possible for us to do so. He would have then been in the catbird seat. He wasn't in the catbird seat before then. He was still, he was behind Biden by six or seven in the polls before the pandemic. So, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think you're right that the pandemic upended things, but it was also an incredible, politically, it was an incredible missed opportunity for him, I think. I don't know. I, mean, I, I, I have a hard time seeing how he wouldn't have ended up politically regarding the pandemic where he is one way or, the, or another. Because that, that of him. But yeah. that's because of his... No, 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 no. Even had yeah, he responded yeah. differently. Uh, okay. I mean, obviously, this is an un. This is right. you know, we're doing one of those you know, what ifs, and you can't right. can't prove it. I, and the I, counterfactual I, is um, uh, Andrew Cuomo, who handled the pandemic objectively terribly and right. has never been called out for it, and continues to be lionized for his objectively terrible performance. So you know who called him out on it? In my favor. You know who Us. called him out on it? John Mulaney. <laughs> the host of Saturday Night Live, America's best stand-up comedian, uh, who did his monologue. Go Google his monologue because he had this whole riff in the middle about Cuomo's press conferences and about how he was tried to be sound sort of tough and resolute and, you know, all this. And then he would start veering off into crazy personal territory. And it's a hilarious riff. And you should really you should really uh, watch it. Um, so. Uh, we have a couple more clips. I think we've sort of anticipated the Florida clip, but uh, Scott, if you play clip four, let's see if it says anything fresh that we can bounce off of. But if he loses Florida in the first hour, it's not close. If he loses Florida in the first hour, it's not close anywhere. Right. Well, we don't know that, but I mean, all what we do know is there is no electoral map. There is no path. Well, what that means is, is that, that he's, he's, we can extrapolate he's, a little bit. If the Hispanic turnout is uniform, as it seems to be in Nevada and Florida, then Arizona, <laughs> Arizona is a problem. Okay, so 
here we are again. As it turns out, by the way, Trump didn't need Florida because uh, if he had lost Florida, that's 29 electoral votes off the 360 God, he would still have won with what, 277? Well, look, here's uh, the biggest difference in that yeah. clip from 2016 to today yeah. is Hispanics are one of Donald Trump's best demographics. Which no one's really talking about is Donald Trump could lose this election. If the polls are, are right, Donald Trump could lose this election and do better among Hispanics and African-American, African-American voters than any Republican in my lifetime. No, I, no, no. Wait, no. Bush, 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 Bush did better. Bush did better among George Hispanics. W. Bush. He got, he got double digits among African-American voters. No, Hispanics. OK, because, well, he, he got over be, he got around 40 percent of Hispanics. Yeah, yeah he, Donald Trump might do that. This time around, and he might get double digits with African-American voters if the polls are accurate, where Joe Biden is doing incredibly well and where Donald Trump has had the bottom fallout from him is among white voters, not just voters with college degrees, although that's a a no man's land for, for Donald Trump. But white working class voters have begun abandoning this president in droves and Democrats are going to face the prospect of having won their majorities back and won the presidency on the back of white voters support. Um, which will yield to some very interesting political dynamics in 2021. Yes. They will immediately turn around and blame and call white supremacists. So <laughs> we, 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 should, we should say, we should say, by the way, that the only national poll of Hispanic voters in the last five or six days, uh, which was uh, Telemundo's, um, has uh, Trump at 32 uh, or 31, something like that, which is only two percentage points higher than Romney. Uh, so I, I don't know that that that's necessarily going to play out. We are told that he is doing well among Hispanic men, but remember, subpopulations are really, really hard to really, really hard to get right. Uh, and Hispanics, apparently, if you treat them as a unified field, which you shouldn't, because a Cuban has very little in common. You know, what I mean, they have we, in common is 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 that they is that they come from Spanish-speaking countries, and that they, at some point in their lives, people spoke Spanish in the house, or maybe not even in their lives. So the notion that they form a unified demographic is itself. We are just a couple of weeks out from former Florida Senator Bill Nelson saying outright on the stump, unguardedly, that Puerto Ricans aren't voting for for us in the numbers that they should, not supporting us in the numbers that they should, and then that was followed shortly thereafter by Joe Biden's Despacito moment, where he like pulled out Despacito and yeah. did this event with um, uh, Ricky Martin, and it was just really cloying, but pretty much tells you exactly where they are with Puerto Ricans as a demographic. You want, you want cloying, go to YouTube and Google Trump's uh, Spanish language television commercial. Um, because it is some kind of like berserk white fantasy of what you would want a television commercial for a Latino to be. It's insane. It's sort of like, you know, women in colorful dresses dancing, like doing the choreography to I like to be in America and then dancing at a rally, sort of showing him dancing and then someone eating a burrito. I mean, I'm not kidding. It's like, oh, dear, can't believe your eyes. Now, I will say this, that um, people are always, you know, people always think, oh, my God, this is going to like annoy using all these cliches is going to annoy people uh you know about uh, the the subgroup that's being appealed to but you know jew people always love ethnic humor about themselves even though they're not supposed to and jews love jewish caricatures and you know uh you know black people love uh, 
Jimmy JJ Walker and his dynamite and stuff like that. It's like, it's a thing that people enjoy. And so maybe I'm wrong, but if I were, uh, uh, you know, if I were a Latinx person, I would find this thing absolutely jaw-droppingly baffling. But watch it for yourself and determine. It's I think it's called Latinos Poor Trump, I believe, um, and you can find it on YouTube. Uh, Burrito sounds like the worst part of all of it. And maybe it's a taco. It might be a taco. Okay, that's that's more universal. The burrito. Okay. I, I I thought it was anyway, uh, or maybe it's just a, a, a you know a Cuban food stand in which the case there wouldn't be burritos or tacos. But um, our last clip uh, deals with um, Ohio. Scott, can you play that one for us? And this happened in in Cuyahoga County, where there right now we're told there's a collapse of African American enthusiasm for. Uh, for Hillary, but we don't know what that machine is going to do on election day. Yeah, and we also know that 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 Ohio's voter registration or voter identification system is such that if you voted in the competitive Republican primary in Ohio, then you're counted as a Republican. So we don't really know who's turning up at the polls. Okay, so this is interesting because this again, if Biden somehow were if 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 Trump pulls the inside straight and loses in Pennsylvania, let's say, it will be because black turnout for Biden cratered or wasn't what it was supposed to be, which is why they, I think, in part, why they had Obama in Pennsylvania last week uh, to spur early voting and uh, drop it, drop off ballot voting um, among African-Americans, particularly in, in Philadelphia. Here's um, where I really blew it. But though. it's interesting. But it's interesting, though, before you say where you blew it. Yeah. Look how we had evidence on the day before the election in 2016 that black support for Hillary was cratering, and and people simply could not fathom that this was true. And so that's why you had everybody sobbing on the you know sobbing at the Javits Center, you know, uh, 36 hours later. If we were noting it, we we had no magical powers to understand that. You know, there was trouble. There were trouble for Hillary in black communities. We only knew that from news stories that said Cuyahoga County is trouble for for in Ohio is trouble for for Hillary. And we have seen some news stories worried about this in a couple of states for Biden anyway. Yeah, so you, you spared me the embarrassment by not pulling that part of the clip, but I noted in that piece uh, of audio, um, either before or after, that uh, the party machine, the Republican Party machine for Donald Trump was not there in Ohio. It was Kasich's machine, and it had very uh, publicly and ostentatiously determined that it wouldn't um, it wouldn't go all out for, for Donald Trump, that they, the, the national committees would have to do all the GOTV at the state level. And we didn't have very much evidence that Donald Trump's campaign or the committees at that point were especially adroit, well-funded, um, had done a lot of groundwork. And so if you had to call it just based on the the lack of on the groundwork as opposed to the all the reporting around the Obama machine, which had rallied around Hillary Clinton and had managed to pull out two consecutive presidential races in Ohio, you had to give it to the Democratic uh, machine there just because it was going to be more active than the Republican one. And that didn't materialize in part because Donald Trump didn't need a GOTV effort in 
uh, Ohio, not the not the kind of, you know, drag people out of their homes and get them to the polls operation that Barack Obama deployed in 2012. It was purely organic, very spontaneous and um, and predicated on genuine enthusiasm for for Donald Trump, which is part of the reason why in the last four years, Ohio has fallen off the map for Democrats. Although here we are and the polling average has it as a tie. Ohio is a tie. Trump won it by eight. And, uh, and Ohio's a tie. So, uh, you know, again, this that could be systemic polling error, or it could be registering a, a surge for Biden um, that we are seeing reflected in the polls all over the place, uh, that everyone, you, you will not get points for saying, don't worry, Biden's going to win, because if he wins, that's fine. If he, you know, but uh, what's interesting is just how terrified People are remain and got even more terrified with a couple of polls over the weekend, particularly one in Iowa that showed uh, that showed Trump up seven, uh, a state that there was no reason even to really think until five months ago that Biden even had uh, should even be thinking about, and certainly doesn't have so many electoral votes that it that it that it matters all that much. But here we are. And we have now rehearsed our, given you our, our little flashback to the day before the election. Uh, we'll, be, uh, we'll be coming to you tomorrow. Uh, we're not going to talk punditry. We're just going to talk stories about election days and what happens on election days and in elections with, uh, with, a, with a, a veteran Republican hand, my old friend Daniel Cass. And then I guess we'll all just hunker down and see what we will finally finally see and as i said we'll have that uh, live live blog for you to read and enjoy um so with that uh thank you very much scott immergut for your help today and for noah christine and abe i'm john Podhoritz. keep the candle burning